Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Dan Riemann, CEO of Fitport Group. Dan is a performance coach, business strategist, and leadership accelerator. With 25 years experience, he's done business in multiple countries, worked with Olympic athletes, and is a human behavior specialist. I've asked him to join us here today to talk about winning the game of business against all odds. So Dan, how you doing, my friend? Super well, man. Great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you here. We've connected a couple of times. We share a lot of like-minded thoughts. Now, before we get into all the, you know, the kind of business talk, how did you even get started? Like, do you come from a family family of entrepreneurs? Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. He was oh, okay. an executive and he ended up being a solopreneur for probably his last 20 years. And that's where he, I guess, put it and explored to find the perfect balance of work, time, freedom, and independence. Yeah, he had a, a few challenges, tried to expand, had a few experiences with employees, didn't go so well, and he just stuck to himself and became the ultimate solopreneur. Got it. Got it. Got it. So how did that translate for you in terms of how did your business career get started? Yeah, well, I think this goes back to, gosh, when I was probably around eight. I had my first job when I was eight. So I was working three jobs through primary school, through high school, and I, I realized and learned the value of money and an exchange of service from a very young age. Mm -hmm. And uh, didn't really have the opportunity to, to travel much as a, as a kid. You know, parents were always on the grind and trying to get ahead. And that aspiration, all I wanted to do was to finish high school and leave on a one-way ticket to travel the world. Right, right, right. So certainly grateful to learn that value of financial independence from such a very young age. Mm -hmm. And, and that really kind of set me up for the future. That's fantastic. So what were sort of your early business ventures? What, when I was eight? Yeah. Or, or well, the when first one, as, as a lot of young boys do, it was a, a paper round. Okay. Delivering newspapers. But my dad was in printing. He was a printing broker. Oh. So even during that, uh, first job some days when the truck would drop off the newspapers they would also drop off a whole stack of flyers and brochures for a supermarket or, or anything else and rather than just slapping it on top of a newspaper or stuffing it in the letterbox i would actually put it inside the newspaper mm. okay so it looked you know that's part of the delivery right. and because dad was in printing i realized that there was a lot of older people in our community and I thought, well, I could cut grass. I can do some basic landscaping. So I actually designed my first flyer when I was eight, had my dad print them and put them into the newspaper. And so if people open the newspaper, it has a I lot more it. credibility. Yeah. And, and then I just had people calling me, asking me to cut their grass or come and prune the, the shrubs that. and clean out their garage. 
And so that was the first entrepreneurial business. And, and again, you, you start to learn the little details around delivery or building authority or offering a service that is of need. And uh, yeah, and that was the first real business. I love that. So, I love that. That's brilliant. And you didn't even yeah. know what you were doing. At the, I mean, you, your dad did, but you didn't, you know, you're so young. That's fantastic. And just put two and two together. So uh, yeah, that was where it all started. And then I worked in just retail stores, like delicatessens, high-end delis, fine wine and food. So of course, my lunches when I went to school were, you know, five-star. Yeah, they weren't peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They were like smoked <laughs> turkey. Peanut butter and, and jelly for me. Get that out of here. I got the premium salami. Yeah, exactly. No trading. I love that. I love that. Okay. <laughs> so you started your business career really, really young. What were some of the earlier challenges that you felt like you had to face and overcome to grow as an entrepreneur? In the actual career side of things. So after I set up the businesses as, as an adult, sure. there's, I think people are the wow. foundation. So leadership and communication is just paramount. What do you mean? So, expand a bit more. I mean, it sounds great, but it's very high level. Can you give me some nitty gritties? So we're in the health industry. We run private personal training studios. We do corporate wellness and leadership programs. And so after university, that's what I studied. Psychology, exercise, physiology. Worked for a couple of years, one-way ticket, traveled the world. And working at the Commonwealth Games in Malaysia led to the opportunity into health hospitality. So working within wellness resorts in Thailand. Then I thought I was going to get stale. So... I thought I'd better check out the Mecca of Health and Fitness, which is the US. Mm -hmm. Went to go and have a look at the US and just thought, well, this isn't what I was expecting. Yeah, we, we talked about that in the pre-interview kind of interview. Like we both, you know, no, no, I'm not trying to throw shade anywhere, but there's a chart you can see on our world and data, life expectancy versus expenditure cost. And the States is an outlier. It's like double, triple the price for healthcare in the US to almost any other country, and it's not even top 10 in terms of performance. There is a giant parasite on the U.S. population, and it is their health system. It's optimized for profit, not performance, very, very clearly if you look at the data. Oh, absolutely. And again, you've got to be able to work backwards and think critically and, and follow follow the dots, and you will see yeah. that it's not just the health system that's broken, it's set up to be broken. Right, right. This comes down to education, big pharma, agriculture, manufacturing. Yeah. yeah. People are schooled and mentored yeah. into the system from a yeah. very young age. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, I thought, well, I need to get back to Asia and pioneer an industry. And that's what I set out to do. So initially, it was to focus only on corporate wellness. So we were probably 20 years ahead of our time. And 20 years later, we're still probably 20 years ahead of our time. So it's a long road of change. And just like with any business, you've got to find and look at the market and see what their needs are, see what that market fit is related to health. Right. And the easiest one for us was the health and fitness training. So the personal training, coaching, and we were the first to open up personal training studios in Thailand. Mm. That was in 2002. Congrats. I'm sure you've got some arrows from that. What did they say? The pioneers get the oh. arrows. The settlers Plenty. get the land. Yeah. Well, what I say is that some say that it's uh, the early bird gets the worm. Yeah. And usually it's the second mouse gets the, cheese. Gets the cheese. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Early bird gets the worm. The second mouse gets the cheese. Pioneers get the arrows. The settlers get the land. Yeah, yeah that's there's, the there's one. truth to that. There's truth to that. So, okay. So, yeah, well, let's talk about what were some of the challenges and how did you overcome them? Yeah, so that's all linked back to being a pioneer is that when you're the first in a space, if you're going to be delivering a premium service, then unless it's all you, it's the teams. Right. So actually being able to recruit professionals as a pioneer in a new non-English speaking foreign country yeah, was definitely true. a challenge. So it's that balance between, I won't say compromising standards, but looking for or being able to bring in and introduce talent to meet the needs of the standards that you're looking to establish. Yeah, so I, recruitment I, was a big one. That's a challenge that I think in some ways may have long-term been an opportunity because I know, again, we talked about this before the call, you know, by being a foreigner in a country trying to do business there, even if it's an English speaking country, there's still like cultural, you know, boundaries, like walls that you feel are, or even economic where, you know, the locals may or may not be able to pay a price that you want to charge type. And you talked about building a team. So it almost forced you to build a team and also forced you to not be the front man and also forced you to build that infrastructure, which is painful to be forced into, but perhaps mm. is a really powerful skill. I think it's a really powerful, powerful skill set. And you also mentioned something else I want to talk about. You talked about leaning in on premium first. Is that accurate? Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. We've always been at the high end of, yeah. of a niche and a price point for sure. I'm going to highlight that for everybody. That is typically the best model for emerging markets. I mean, even if you look at Elon Musk, he didn't go make the Tesla 3 or whatever. He went and made a super flashy, fun roadster with a super high price tag and sold it as a toy to the rich and famous, right? And that right. funded the tech development in solar cars that he needed to then make a $30,000 accessible to the typical average North, you know, Western family model. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same. You look at Toyota then releasing a Lexus, but people still thought it was a Toyota. Right, 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 right. So, so go premium, uh, build a team. I love that. That's right. And Another earlier lesson was a, before we actually formalized the business, I was literally riding a mountain bike around the city of Bangkok. I might have to <laughs> ride for 30 minutes to go and train a client in their house on the other side of the city. Right. And it would take 30, 45 minutes to ride there. Yeah. So that next level was then establishing out of a, a more central location. So I had partnerships with five-star hotels. Mm. And then I was just working with clients in who were already members. So that was a great partnership to have. But in one of these locations, I had uh, one of my early coaches or trainers at that time, super highly credentialed MMA background, big ego, and he had some weight behind him. So after about a year, I had a team of three at that time. And this guy turned around and said, well, I don't need you. None of us are working for you anymore. And we're taking all the clients. and There's nothing you can do about it. So I was like, okay, went and had a little chat with the, uh, the health club manager of the hotel at that time. And she turned around and basically said, oh, well, it's, uh, it's not my problem. This is after 
driving business and memberships and you know tens of thousands of dollars into their business for the last three years and that was it so that was probably my first real dark point of business mm. that really took a hit and getting over that it was then clear and evident that you can't establish your own independent brand or business within an existing brand or business business yeah this so is a great i learned that early Great point. And I want to yeah. highlight this because I think a lot of people are doing this. I see so many business owners right now that are building their house on someone else's land. So strategic alliances can be fantastic. And, you know, they talk about leveraging other people's money, other people's resources and other people's customers. And that's what you did. You leverage these hotels, their resources and their clients, their customers to build a business within there. But at the end of the day, you know, you didn't necessarily have a moat protecting you and I've seen that and a great example of what happened with us at one point with a client, we grew their Facebook following from like 30,000 followers to I think 300,000 followers on Facebook. Wow, that's huge. Our organic, this is 2013 and our organic reach was in the millions per week, just with posts, right? On Facebook, we would have wow. millions of impressions on this. We're driving sales January 1st, 2014, boom, Facebook introduced the boost post feature. And now wow. it's going to be 700 to 1400 bucks per post to get the same reach we've been getting organically a week before. And so if our, and luckily we've been building our own list. And so this is for people, you know, like there's the influencers, the YouTubers, the Instagram, whatever, mm. right. You build this following on that platform. You've built your house on someone else's land. And I think I just wanted to expand on that a little bit because I just think in today's day and age where there's a lot of quick and easy tools, you can launch a membership site, you can do this, do that. You can just pay a monthly subscription and then, but you just got to be careful when somebody else, like if you've been online long enough, you remember MySpace used to be the, the rage. You, you know that YouTube started off as a dating site. You. Wow. I didn't know that. YouTube. It was your video channel so people could get to know you you can go to archive.org and put in youtube there go to the earliest and it is i am a male like 18 year old male single you know married male looking for blank that was wow tube so when you know that the how at the the speed of science we're going to use a word from our good friends Pfizer here the speed of science that the internet <laughs> evolves at you just know that it's great to be where the people are but you got to get them to your house somehow. You got to build your own email list, your own text yeah. list, your own. You can import emails into LinkedIn and Facebook, but you can't export followers. 100%. And I think the second part of, of that is, is coming back to AA. You got to cover your ass. Right. So you've got to have contracts and agreements and clauses yeah. in place that cover every single detail. Right. That was the one thing that missed. We could have right. still been successful in, you know, outsourcing a premium service to an existing facility. That is still a model that could work, but you've got to have tight agreements and contracts in place right. to protect yourself. That's what we yeah. didn't have. And that's a two-sided, it's a two-sided edge as well. As someone who's been there and gone to court to get fees I was owed, one thing I've learned is you you hundred percent do need you. businesses use contracts. They do. They use agreements and contracts. This is because with many people on a team, it's the same reason why like at a McDonald's, 
someone they can McDonald's built a multi-billion dollar brand off of essentially hiring unskilled labor, right? And teenagers, because anybody could jump into a role and see the documentation. So part of why you need a contract is so there's no confusion. You don't need to get Tim and Jerry together to figure out who agreed to what. But enforcing a contract is really only as good as your ability to pay for the legal process to enforce it. So I just want to emphasize for people that on top of having the contracts, you really do still need to respect the person and the relationship that has to be there. Paperwork can be lost. People can say, I don't give an F. If you're a mighty mouse, but you're up against a giant corporation, their legal team will eat you up and spit you out. But having the contract morally and that social like obligation, you know, if there's a relationship Mm. there, they don't want to, you know, we can't screw this guy. Look, we got a contract. We can't screw them. So, but it's, yeah, there's a social contract and a legal one. You need both. 100%. And that on top also comes back down to your relationships. Yeah. 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 Right. You've got to maintain rapport. You've got to have good communication with your partners. Yeah. And you've got to establish and, and have continuous checks in place that, you know, you're on the same page and everything is yeah. Yeah. mutually beneficial and it's working. Yeah. It's like a marriage. It, Things it, change. It, yeah. It's like a, it's like a long-term relationship, you know, it takes work. So these are great yeah. points. Again, if people, if you haven't been taking notes, you probably need to take some notes. We've already dropped some bombs that you need to build a team. You should focus on high end to low end, work yourself backwards. I had a client, he had a company called Frank the Mover in my hometown, and he hired me as his coach. And I quickly found out not only did he own Frank the Mover, which was the most expensive moving company in the city, he also owned Move for Less, which was the cheapest moving company in the city. And then I also learned that it was the same team moving everybody. And it was the same secretaries answering the phones. Wow, there you one go. phone number led to people getting forms with a letterhead and there were frills there were extra extra padding extra stuff there there was legitimate you know valid reason for the extra right but like you mentioned about branding before i don't know if we hit record then or not but the branding was that it was premium and so it was just a different phone number and then they had no logo on the shirt, white van, no logo, you know, no frills. They just grab your box, throw it in the truck and drag you wherever you go, you know, so. And no doubt if they did have competition at the lower end, they would still probably have a higher standard of service, even at the lower end. Right. It would allow them to then differentiate at right. that different price point. Economies of scale. They're serving so many people now. We've got, you know, a, a greater ability to serve. Yeah, 100%. Hundred percent. And actually, you talk yeah. about that because I, you know, charging more lets you do more for your clients. If your margins are like you, you know, if price is your only differentiator, there's nothing saving you from somebody else coming into the market and trying to upset your apple cart. And they might be suicidal, great, but doesn't mean they're not like they might take you out with them, right? So you need to have more. So can you speak to charging premium prices? Is there a psychology to that? on top of just providing more value or? Well, yeah, I think it's it's really important that you get clear on how you justify that price point. Anyone can go out there and charge a number and say that they're better, but how do you back that up and how do you establish that positioning authority and how can you quantify or make that value tangible? Right, right, right. So you've got to have the backup. And, and of course, building authority and your positioning is a process in itself 
Right. And you've got to have them, whether that's through the testimonials or a science-based approach or something that's tangible, then you can start to justify. As far as how you position yourself in a market, again, it comes back down to your, your pricing strategy. And that means no discounting. So we yes. have never discounted. We don't do deals. We don't do offers. We don't do any partnerships with coupons and 10, 20, 25% off. We always deliver or add value to a program or yes. increase the length yes. of time Yes. or we, we add to it. Right. And that has been crucial for us. That's been a learning experience as well. Yeah. I love that. There's a guy who wrote a great book, Libby on RFM, and he called discounts the kiss of death because yeah. you train people to wait for the next bargain where it's better to just, like you said, find a way to add value. I just had a conversation with this. I'm an equal equity owner in a supplement company. And we just came up with 52 different offers that we could test. And, and there's only two and they're only on this, if they get the subscription where we re-up every month where there's a discount, the rest is like, get, you know, order and get this. It's like a bundle. Like we're going to put more in, but we're not lowering our price point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. hundred percent. So that's been pivotal for us. And, you know, we talked about leadership or communication, whether that's with clients or teams, it's, that is an art in itself because we'll, there are certain demographics, nationalities that have this uh, inherent genetic necessity to ask for discounts. Yes. Okay. Culturally, it's, it's rude. To <laughs> you not. probably know. And the art of how you respond to those is a game changer. Yeah. And yeah. you can respect them and totally understand and say, look, we, we have transparent pricing and we ensure that it's fair for all of our clients. Yeah. So we establish our moral integrity as a value to explain why we don't discount and why they can't get a cheaper price. Right. Right. Yeah. Sorry, we can't. But because you're so special, what I can do. So one of the things that we did as an example for what Pete, he's talking about is in our systems, after someone's purchased once, we actually send them an email and this is just the kind of idea where you're saying, like, when someone asks for a discount, you don't necessarily have to give them reduced price. You can just give them preferential treatment. That's a way to add value. So we have, when people buy the first time, we send them a letter letting them know that they've achieved preferred customer status and they have a dedicated rep and that this rep will be reviewing all their orders and that although we try to ship everything out on time as fast as possible when the orders come in, Sometimes if we see certain names, we ask the truck to come, you know, we ask for a second pick or we draw, do an, an extra drop off that day, right? Like the truck comes to the warehouse to pick up every day. But if we see some names, we do a drop off at the end of the day, just to get it out the door a little quicker. And there's nice. no discount. There's no nothing. It's recognition. And they feel special. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. You said, sometimes we're just going to look, I can't, but you know what I can do for you. I can put your name to the top of the pile. You know what I can do for you? I can make sure you work with this guy who's our best. You know what I can do for you, right? Like, Yeah. As long as you give them something, they feel special. They feel acknowledged. And yeah, and it's a personalized offer all of a sudden. It's a for yeah. me. It's that custom fit. 
which comes back. It's not about price. It's about the value and the service that you provide. Yeah. It is yeah. very emotionally charged. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So in your corporate consulting and coaching, what are some of the greatest mistakes you see your clients and others making? I think the first one is, especially on the, we'll say the corporate side of things, as we know, the, the corporate structure is, is very archaic and, and a very essential people-driven part of the business is human resource management. And what we notice that a lot in different parts of the world, they function differently and their skill set is very unique. Here in Asia, they tend to be less as human resource professionals and literally a buffer for compliance and policy mm. between leadership and employees. Mm. So the, the biggest... Right. So, and they don't have a, a great deal of capacity or opportunity to actually think for themselves. Right. right. They've just got to follow procedures and hire and fire. Right. But on the flip side, wellness, mental health, stress, resilience, leadership, human resource development is a specialty in itself. Yeah. And so these high level cultural behavioral responsibilities are handed over to HR, who are not trained, not specialized, they're not right. experts in this, but right. they've been told that it's their responsibility. Right. And of course, right. these organizations, it doesn't matter what kind of ROI you can show based on retention, sick leave, productivity, performance, they're still in the old school way of thinking. And as long as everyone's checking their boxes, they're happy. Yep. So they're missing out on a massive opportunity on transformational culture, retention, yes. performance, leadership, vision. And of course, there are some organizations and startups and certain industries in the tech space. They are taking this people first approach. Yep. But that has been, I think, still one of the biggest bottlenecks is to be able to communicate the value to get leaders to make that shift and be like, you know what, guys, this is really important to us. I can see the financial return. Let's get some experts in to help us and consult with us to build the most value-driven, people-oriented culture we can possibly create. I love that. Health, yeah. business, financial, ROIs, stakeholders are happy, leaders yeah. are happy, people are happy. It's win-win. Yeah. yeah, 100%. There's a big gap that needs to be filled and there is just, it's very slow. Yeah. Well, it's the idea you're only as strong as your weakest link, right? And you can try to force someone to work and crack the whip all you want, but if they're not motivated, right? I, I agree hundred percent. That's a great, that's a great one. And so if you look at majority of corporate training programs, it's all about the business and the bottom line, your KPIs, your OKRs. This is it. This is what we're going to hit this week. Okay, and that's good for a very small percentage of people who are kind of number and, and data driven. But what I share with, with clients now is that we've got to flip the table. It's not about that top-down EQ. We've got to flip EQ and the power of this in emotional intelligence and awareness of how to intercept stress, our aspirations of what we want. And it needs to be a ground level necessity for even entry-level staff 
Yeah. Teach them about goals. Teach them about knowing what they want, about critical thinking, about how to ask more powerful questions. What am I doing on a daily basis? How do I feel? Am I closer to my goal? What yeah. could I do better today? How yeah. could I help this person that would make my job easier? Yeah. yeah. Right. So from a driver to a maid to, you know, a fresh grad, these are the skills that people need to learn. Yeah. That is what I believe direct transference into organizational leadership because yep. it's based on self-leadership right this is it this is the skills that people need yeah i agree the world's changing so fast i think it was i uh, read in something like 2009 the top 10 in-demand jobs in 2019 didn't exist in 2017 a two-year turnaround go. how do you top 10 right like how do you stay up with that how do you keep up with that how do you anticipate that so, so I, you got to be uh, aware you got to be able to identify trends. I mean, look with chat, the, the talk yeah, this chat week. GPT, yep. GPT, I mean, this is going to be so disruptive. And I think it's probably the first real use case that the average individual can actually see the impact that it's going to have on society. Yeah, you know, I've got yeah. mixed feelings about that. Like... Here's, and I agree with what you're saying, because that's what everybody is saying. And it's, it is in a lot of ways, it is hundred percent. It eliminates it, it. I just don't think we have to worry about being replaced. I think what has to happen is the non-performers need to worry more because I think the high achievers and the performers and the people that are engaged, right. I think they're going to use this tool to then have a higher output. It's like the difference between farming with a horse or farming with a tractor right? Like we still need farmers, but one yeah. will be a higher performer than the other. But people that aren't engaged, people are just not paying attention, clocking in, clocking out, going home, watching their Netflix, just going to exactly. be left in the dust. So that's why I say it's going to be disruptive and yeah. it's going to lead to change. Right. How? Exactly. For sure. We don't know yet, but we know there is, it's going to be disruptive. Now, what's the downfall of what you just said? It just means that that gap and that divide is going to get even greater. Right. Right. All right. So that brings other challenges to society in itself. Now, yeah. does that feed people into the metaverse and that you'll own nothing and be happy narrative? That's Who knows? Is there going to be more people dependent on, on the government? Is yeah. this going to lead to greater unemployment? because they don't have access to developing new skills, yeah. knowledge. Do yep. they just get left further behind? Time will tell. Yeah, it's we an interesting see. thing. So my personal belief is that's the constant battle we've seen between like capitalism and communism, right? Is essentially mm -hmm. one of freedom and equality. So if you look at the Kulaks in Russia, the Kulaks were an elite group of high producers. They were the best farmers in the country, but people had disdain for them because they were so you know, wealthy and they didn't, you know, there were cultural differences. And, and so they basically either jailed or killed all the kulaks. But what happened next was a giant famine because no one else could produce like them. And that's essentially the end of the story for communism every, and socialism everywhere it's rolled out. The highest performers get eliminated and you have what you have left is a I, I really had to bite my tongue there. What you have left are a bunch of non-contributing zeros. I'm just going to say it that way. 
who then don't know how to do the thing the great people knew to do. And it just kind of, you know, it's the snake eating its own tail, so to speak. Now that said, capitalism is is not without its flaws. We don't really have free markets right now. You know, we both kind of know CrossFit. And one of the brilliant things I heard Greg Glassman say was, a market essentially is unknown and unknowable. There's constantly people coming in and out of a market for someone. You're shopping for a car, but then you decide to get a motorbike, What right? So a market essentially, you can have estimates, but it's typically unknown and unknowable, but everybody can recognize excellence. And in a, in a true free market, the purpose of that is so excellence can be recognized and rise to the top versus just the prescribed one and everyone's on a fixed income, whether you do better or don't not going to change how much rice you get and what your money's going to be every month. So, right. Like, so there's no incentive to improve. And so that's, that's, you know, you bring up some really interesting points. I think going back to one of the things you were talking about before with everything to do with alliances, building the team, uh, the HR management, it's the people skills. I just don't know if AI is going to be able to completely eliminate the need for a human and that that nuance just yet right well not not in all industries of course it's it's always going to be unique industry specific service specific at all levels and that's why there's going to be disruption oh yeah Um, 100 but how we shall see people you can't replace humans completely you know in our business it's all very much relationship driven it's personal training studios and health coaching predominantly and it is face-to-face Right. We've seen that. Yes, there was a, a massive disruption into online training over the last few years. Yep. But then as soon as the option to be with people comes back, yeah, people want, you want to be with people. People want to interact with people. And uh, what it does, it, it certainly brings a more cost efficient option for people to get started and to access information. Right. Right. So that's definitely a plus. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's very much relationship driven still. Deals, relationships, opportunities. Yeah. You know, it's, it's based on human interaction and engagement. Yeah. I think what matters most is our ability to eliminate errors, errors in bias, errors in all sorts of things, because we're already cyborgs. Like, I'm not talking to you with my mouth. I'm talking with you through my mouth, into a microphone, into a mixing board, into my laptop, into the internet, over to you through some speakers. We're already cyborgs. We already, it's just, we have clumsy interfaces. It's not directly yeah. wired to our brain and all that, but it's the same thing with the printing press. You know, all it did was the printing press allowed things like books. They didn't have to be handwritten. You used to have to write every time. When you bought a book, somebody had to hand copy the old book, yeah. the original book before. Now with the printing press, you just fire out a hundred thousand of those. And now you can take the knowledge someone had accumulated in a lifetime and make it accessible to every single man, woman, and child in the country. So that's, again, there's pros and cons to, to everything. We just have yeah, to I think it brings a lot of danger as well, because who's behind it and what's their agenda, what's their narrative and where is that bias? Yeah. And how can we trust that? Right. So we've got to always, again, be looking at multiple sources of information to try yeah. and draw our own conclusions yeah. and find our own truth, yep. you know? And I think that's probably the biggest danger with something like this. If society becomes so dependent on one source of data. Right. Well, yeah, that's always been dangerous at any point in time. So Karl Popper was one of the original scientific philosophers, educators, 
and he had a formula for the scientific method. And he came, he would come right out and go, there is no scientific method. There is no method that guarantees a scientific breakthrough. What we have is a way of eliminating errors so we can, you know, clumsily kind of LARP, lurch our way, march our way into the future and eventually, you know, periodically have some big insights. And you know, the formula was P1 plus TT or TS plus EE equals P2. Problem one plus temporary solution or temporary theory plus eliminate the errors, which you do with observation, debate, criticism, experimentation equals P2. Or you're still at P1, but now you've understood the problem better, maybe clarified the problem, right? They say, you know, properly articulating the problem is half of the, you know, it's more than half of the way there. And so that's a huge part. And that's even with our democratic processes, voting, the whole purpose is not to necessarily guarantee the right person gets into the office, the right person makes the policies. It's, it's there so we can all go, hey, this guy sucks. This is dangerous. Let's get this guy out of it's there to eliminate the errors, ideally quickly and efficiently, so we can continue to progress. Because that's how it's supposed to work, right? That's how it's supposed to work. In theory. Right. <laughs> right. Well, 100%. You know, the democratic process, did you say? Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> right. So, I mean, people don't know what they don't know, but we know when things are hurting a significant portion of the population. And that's when we need to be able to have a, and, you know, that's part of why free speech is so important. When people can't articulate, they did a study on inmates. I forget the year, but I remember reading about a study where they found that the vast majority of people incarcerated had poor reading skills and poor vocabulary. And so the, the assumption at that point was that because they were unable to articulate themselves, they had to resort to just physically, physical attempts to get what they needed. And if you can't have free speech that, you know, how do people express themselves if they can't verbally do it well now they got to get physical and so yeah, that's, that's where it. you know yeah, survival isn't it which is so, yeah so can you talk what are, some, what are some of the habits that you really feel have helped you on your path to success definitely on energy management full stop right that is the overriding driver for action for happiness now it's the easiest one to benchmark and to measure and to fix because as we were saying earlier, it's related to physical activity, yep. dopamine, yep. sleep. Yep. And so one of the protocols that we, we do is based on neural activation and isometrics. And so you're getting a full neural activation response, which means we're getting a dopamine response. So when we're looking at difficult tasks or big goals or being fearful, getting into flow states, it's about learning how to switch on and optimize those hormones and the neural response to just think of what's going to get me to that next point, mm. whether that's that next decision or the next action, right? Or that next task. That's all you need to think about. So we narrow down the scope into how can I hack or release dopamine continuously? Mm. That leads to energy because it's the motivation hormone. That's what moves mm. us forward. That's what gives us confidence, belief, desire, aspirations to keep moving. And so movement is a big part. Making decisions, being decisive is a big part because you're not worried about failing or making mistakes. You just want to move forward. 
Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that is around energy management. Yeah, I love that. So being able to be decisive is a big part of growth and success because you're always on the move. Yep. You're not in decision fatigue. You're not fearing and overthinking of things that haven't happened or may yep. not ever happen. And yep. you just get addictive. We call this that contagious momentum, right? That's the extension of in a constant state of decisiveness, action, behavior, movement. Yep. What's next? Let's go. Yep. 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 Yeah. I was so that's, that's moving over meditation. Point. That's the thing a monk will never tell you, right? You can sit there and meditate on how to play tennis forever, but until you get up, you swing the racket, you see what you're doing right or wrong. And be fearless. Uh, that's, you know, why I also left on a one-way ticket to, to travel the world. Yep, yep, yep. I wasn't thinking of consequences or fear or loneliness. I was like, let's go. Bring yeah, it well, on. We never know. You never know. There's this great, try and say it quickly, Alan Watts. I love Alan Watts. And he's got this great story, the, the dream, this great talk, The Dream of Life. He was like, let's just imagine, suspend your disbelief. I'm not going to try and convince you of anything, but just suspend your disbelief for a moment. And imagine that every time you go to sleep at night, you can dream a hundred years of life or however many years you want of life. And in the beginning, when you realize you have this power, every night you go to sleep, you'll live lives of lavish pleasure and do all the things that you want to do. Hundreds of years of existing as this over and over and over and over again. But eventually you'll get bored and you'll be like, well, now I want it to maybe I want there to be some risk involved or some challenges. Right. And eventually after dreaming hundreds of years of life every night, you one night go to bed and go, tonight, when I go to bed, I don't want to know that I'm dreaming. I don't want to know that I'm going to wake up after this and it's all going to be okay. And, you know, in a lifetime of dreaming, hundreds of years of life, you could possibly, it's realistic, you could possibly be dreaming the life that you're living right now. And the only thing we all really know is that none of us get out of here alive. Nobody, we, we all have hopes of uploading our brains, all that, but it's not done yet. Maybe. Right. We'll never know. Hope, That's hope it. for the best, plan for the worst. So let's hope for that. But in the meantime, like you said, be fearless. And be fearless. we're all, we're all going to yeah. die anyway. How do you want to go out? Yeah. That's it. Right. That, that, that's a big driver for me. Yeah. Not fearful of anything. And I've been in some dark enough places that ah, today's just another day. Yeah. Let's go well, just keep yeah. moving. Yeah. Well, you're outside your home country. That's anybody who's That's traveled right. knows there can be, you know, it's a very different experience than it's you, there's no safety nets when you're not in the neighborhoods you grew up in with your family network, even the culture, even as simple things like how do I, whatever, how do I take like the transit system? How do I get a health? Like how's the health system go here? You learn that stuff as a kid with your mom and dad taking places. When you go to a totally different country, different languages and that, you know, you're, you got no safety net. There's no tightrope. There's no nothing to catch you. So yeah, there's many, we'll say principles that we share with clients that have learned from trial and error and, and experience in, in life. And I think this is the challenge. There are many variables, but each to their own. Like we need to find the variables that work for us. Right. And you can take one principle and saying, right, keep it simple. Focus on one thing at a time. Make it really easy. That will still keep you in your comfort zone. At some point, you need to then explore another extreme of, say, the 10x theory, 10x thinking, 10x resourcefulness, mm-hmm. setting big audacious goals that scare you, 
But then on the other side, they're so big, they're not even realistic. So you can still right. like, disassociate from fear because it's comical. It's cartoon. Right. It's part of the matrix. Right. But it allows you to be creative and curious and separate from reality right. to think of what if kind of goals and processes and challenges happen at that level. Yep. And then you're not fearful to fail at that big level. So you learn those lessons and apply it to the simple things, the systems on a daily basis. So nothing is in context. I think that's the biggest challenge. People read something on the internet and they try and apply it, but it doesn't work. It's because there are always other variables at play right. that will determine the effectiveness or efficiency of a strategy or tool that we use whether right. it's in legion or business or health or weight loss or happiness or stress, it doesn't matter. There are multiple variables and it's not going to be just one variable that is going to give you that breakthrough. Right. Right. So how do you reproduce those? And that's why increasing your awareness, I look at the ABC approach, awareness, behaviors, and choices. That's it. So you need anchors in place to be able to intercept where you are on any given day. What are you doing? What's your outcome? What's working? What isn't? Where should I invest my time? Who do I need to speak to? What are my priorities for tomorrow? These are your, you know, you can call them habits or rituals or anchors, or reflection or journaling. It doesn't matter what it is, but it means you've got anchors in place on a consistent basis to give you the opportunity to stop and assess where you're at, what you're doing. All right, this is the EQ, increasing your awareness around your environment, your behaviors, what you want. Is it aligned with your purpose, your aspirations? Are you happy? Do you want to do something different? Mm. Right. And just this one point around awareness is massive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when people get it, bam. Okay. Mm -hmm. That then moves on to stage two. So that is the ABC of life. Mm. The mm. how and you implement it for each individual is going to be unique to them and their desire to ask the questions and explore their environment. Right. And their own interaction within their own environment. Right. Right. What right. makes them happy and what doesn't make them happy. Right. That's the ABC. I think we covered this when we first spoke too is, this is the process. And so what I share with clients is the goal is irrelevant. The process is critical. Mm -hmm. And without accountability, none of it matters. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if you want to make a million dollars, you want to 10x your business, you want to lose 10 pounds, yep. you want to be happier, you want to have a better yep. relationship, you want to create a bigger impact. Yep. It doesn't matter about the goal. Yep. But the process is essential and it all starts with awareness of your environment and your actions and behaviors and what kind of an outcome that's leading to. So yep. what do you need to change? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. Now, I can't make it any more simple. And that's how you can simplify a simple framework of what success is and what you need to investigate. Yeah. This is great. People listening again, you may want to go back and re-listen to this if you haven't already got a couple of pages of notes. I know I do. Dan, you've dropped a lot of knowledge here. It's been fantastic. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? When are we going to catch up in your neck of the woods, probably? <laughs> yeah. We can talk about uh, that. Are those palm trees real? <laughs> yeah. 
No, no, this is not my backyard. I'm I'm actually here out for full transparency. It's just a white wall. But this was my background for two years when I was on Palawan. But you know, now I got a daughter. I'm done school. I can go live remote. You know, I'm I'm on Elon Musk Starlink waiting list. I'm I'm joke. I'm gonna buy an island and a hovercraft. And I'm just like hovercraft into town every day, get my groceries, whatever, go back home to nice. my island. You know, and it's very food. possible where we live. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. It's totally the plan. Very. But right now I gotta live a little bit closer to civilization while the little one is, you know, she needs ballet and jujitsu and, and good schools and that. So that's a good combination. So yeah. So but it's just a quick <laughs> ballet and jujitsu. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Soccer, Perfect. ballet, jujitsu, reading and math. She's in a private school. Anyways, that's all inside stuff. Dan, how do so, people um, connect with you if they want more info? Sure. They can connect uh, through the website, which is danreeman.com. That's R-E-M-O-N-D-A-N. That's right. D-A-N-R-E-M-O-N.com. And then I also have a, a short podcast of audios. It's called Two Minute Coach. That's number two, minutecoach.com. And again, keeping things simple. Again, we know that podcasting is a, a big time and energy commitment and financial as well. So I wanted to make sure that I could be consistent and I make it as easy as possible. So we just take snippets out of our online training and other conversations, take the two minute snippets and, and load it more consistently. And that way you've got growth tools that you can digest in just two minutes. You keep it simple. It's a little anchor that you can do every single day and any pivot, any transition, any shift in life, it's not a big task. You just break it down. Two minutes a day can change everything. It can be that simple. So twominutecoach.com, danreeman.com. Perfect. Probably two the minute easiest coach, two the number two, number two, number two, twominutecoach.com, danreeman.com. Definitely reach out. Let them know, especially if you're in Thailand and that neck of the woods. And Dan, thank you so much for doing Great this. Great place to be. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for your time too, Daryl. We'll see you on the next one.